going to bed works really well unless you're reading one of those books or one of those authors that loves to end every chapter with a cliffhanger. And you're like, well, well then it's going to do one chapter more. And before you know it, it's after 1 a.m. and the whole reading before going to bed thing didn't work in my favor. Ah, uh, those cliffhangers can be tough. Now, I know there are many of you who prefer to watch movies than, than read books, and you're wrong, but I know you're out there. And movies do this too. Uh, we don't always have the, the same type of end of a, a chapter or a chapter break, but there'll be some sort of plot twist or some unforeseen happening, and all of a sudden we're on the edge of our seats, and we'll grab that popcorn, and we'll just start eating. We're ready. I can't wait to see what happens next. This is a, actually a very compelling way to tell a story. And, and the martyrdom of Stephen that we read in the book of Acts last week gave us a huge plot twist and left us with a cliffhanger. Again, up to this point, that the early church had been going along very smoothly. Uh, the thousands of people had come to faith through the preaching of the apostles and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were able to, to minister and meet in Jerusalem and, and make sure they cared for each other so that no one was in need. And yeah, they had some tension and some run-ins with the religious leaders. But when Stephen was stoned, was put to death by an angry mob of those religious leaders, now everything had changed. The landscape was different. This was, for, for many, I'm sure, an unforeseen thing. And, and now we didn't know what was going to happen next. How would the church respond? What will happen to the church of Jesus now? Will they continue to be bold or will they fold under the pressure? Now, Saul was certainly not making things any easier. He was a young man, very zealous in his Judaism, and he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. And then after that, he made it his mission to go and to persecute the church of Jesus even further. And, and now it wasn't just Stephen getting in trouble for, for having controversial teaching. It was now Saul going into people's homes and hunting down those who believed in Jesus and throwing them into jail. He was really ramping up the persecution of the church across the board. How would the church respond? Now, it was a peer of Stephen's that shows the ongoing heart and the mission of the church. Our story today is going to be centered around the person named Philip. And Philip was one of the seven deacons that were appointed to help in the ministry of the church, along with Stephen. They were two of these seven leaders who were called in a specific function to help support the apostles and, and to preach the good news of Jesus. And his colleague and, and friend Stephen had just been put to death. And after this, Philip then does not go into hiding. He does not try to get away from Saul. He instead goes and preaches the good news of Jesus in Samaria, bringing many Samaritans to believe in Christ. <coughs> in fact, if we read through some of that, we're skipping over it today, but there are many, many people, hundreds if not thousands of Samaritans coming to faith through the ministry of Philip. And the church is expanding beyond just Israel and just traditional Judaism. The Samaritans were close by, and they were closely related to the Jews, but they were not the same. <laughs> and they didn't always get along. But they still did believe in Yahweh. They were still God-fearing people. They had a, a version of the Hebrew Scriptures that they followed. And they did worship, but they worshipped at a different location. So they weren't quite Gentiles, but they weren't quite Jews. But as we see, the church and the message of Jesus is now expanding. And after his successful missionary journey to Samaria, God tells Philip to go somewhere else. And this is where we pick up our story and continue to see what happens next. So we need to have our popcorn ready and our Bibles ready too, because we're going to read starting in Acts chapter 8, 
picking up in verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, a number of years ago, my father-in-law bought a motorcycle hitch where he could, he could have this motorcycle then hitched to the back of his vehicle. And I was always kind of like, why don't you just ride the motorcycle? And he never gave me a straight answer. But apparently, sometimes you want this thing just to follow you around. And so he had this hitch. And I'm not sure what the name of the hitch was, but the branding on the box was my favorite. It said, I go where I'm towed. I go where I'm towed. And I'm like, that's amazing. I want one, and I don't even own a motorcycle. That's an amazing hitch. I go where I'm towed. And and it's this kind of idea that we see show up in Philip's life, because what we just read is, is Philip's been going to Samaria and to different cities and preaching in front of huge crowds and having many people come to faith in Jesus. And in the middle of that, an angel comes and tells him to go somewhere completely different. And Philip gives us a great example of this obedience. He goes where he's told in that way. In our story, it was an angel of the Lord who was a messenger, which is quite interesting. It is an angel of the Lord that gives Philip this initial instruction to go to a specific place. And then after that, in the rest of our story in Acts 8, it's always the Holy Spirit who is giving uh, Philip guidance. Angels were still very active throughout the book of Acts. That's one thing that I find very interesting as I've been reading and studying the book is, is that the angels are still there operating as messengers for God. Angels are still also involved in rescue as we'll see in the story of Peter when he gets um, released from prison. But then we know from the combination of the two that angels and the Holy Spirit were working together to give God's guidance to Philip. These are just different expressions, different ways in which someone who, who feared the Lord and who believed in the Lord Jesus, full of the Spirit, would have God directing and guiding him every step of the way. Whether it was an angel or the Spirit, it's all part of God's guidance. And what did God tell him to do? Well, he told Philip to go to the south road between Jerusalem and Gaza which is literally in the middle of nowhere. And as Luke says in an understatement, by the way, this is a desert place. It's, it's in the middle of the wilderness. I've got a map to show you, and it's far too small, but we'll look at it on the map. I have a laser pointer. Whew, this is always fun. I can show you all sorts of cool different things. Boom. All right, so right here is Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. This is the height of uh, the most populated area of, of Judea at that time. And then this green road that goes south and then towards the west, all the way to Gaza. This is the road that uh, um, Philip was told to go to. And as soon as you get out of Judea, out of sort of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, then here, then you start to get into out of the hill country, the desert place. This is called the Negev. It's the wilderness. It's literally part of where Moses and the children of Israel would have been wandering aimlessly, not aimlessly, but at some point, it's it's abandoned. It's it's in the road between. Uh, a big city and a smaller city, but in between there's absolutely nothing at all. And so you can see why Philip might have had so many different potential questions. He had just been in a populated area and seen so many converts. Why? Why would I go now when things are going so well? Why not more huge crowds and big cities? Is this really the best place for me going to the middle of nowhere? 
And while I'm sure Philip had many of those questions, he voiced none of them. He didn't raise any of the doubts. Instead, he simply rose and went. We see simple and significant obedience to God's guidance through Philip. And we are called to the same simple and significant obedience to God's guidance. In other words, we also need to be people who go where we're towed. (laughs) When God points us in a certain direction to do something or to go somewhere, we need to simply get up and go and get up and do. And is that true in our life? Is that true for you? Do, do, Do you go where God tells you to? Do I do that? Or do we all tend to simply raise those very reasonable questions and doubts in our mind? When God impresses something on us, do we simply rise up and go? Or do we bring these doubts forward? But, but this is my home. My family is close by. I couldn't think, I couldn't conceive of living anywhere else. I'm too old to consider changing careers. I'm set in my ways. I'm comfortable here. I think I'll just continue to stay the course. No, I always dreamed of going to university, not into a trade. I don't care what my high school math teacher says. I want to go to college. Well, the financial risk is too great. I know there's this interesting and intriguing business opportunity. God might be wanting me to do that, but I just, I'm not going to take that risk. What if she doesn't like me? What if she says no when I ask her out for coffee? All of these things, very reasonable concerns, things that we should think through and we should acknowledge. They're they're good to raise to a certain point, but none of those questions or doubts should be things that would stop us from following the guidance of God. I'm very fortunate in my family to have seen my parents model this willingness to go. We had two significant moves in my life, Uh, one when I was 10 and we moved from southern Manitoba to Dallas, and one when I was 16, we moved from Dallas to Calgary. And we had to travel through a lot of wilderness to get to both places. And both times, my parents were convinced that this is what God was asking them to do. And both times, it was never easy. It was a huge shock to our family. It cost us all something personally. It cost us proximity to family. It cost us uh, abandoning some close relationships and friendships that we had. Each and every time, when my parents counted the cost and had these questions and doubts in their mind, they circle back to the fact they truly believe God was telling them to go. And so they went. And I'm grateful that they gave me that example to follow. Now, you might be sitting here saying, okay, sure, pastor, you've convinced me. I'm willing to do these things. I'm willing to go where God asks me to. How in the world can I know for sure? How can, how can God's guidance be that clear to me? I mean, Philip had it easy. He had a direct message from God. An angel appeared to him and said, go there. And Philip was like, fine, I'll go. In fact, I've shared this with some of you. I've made a deal with God. Uh, in ministry, you, as much as, as any other area of life, you really want to, just to, to do what God wants you to do. You want to go where God calls you to go. So far, that's been Stonewall and Steinbeck. And I say to God, I will go anywhere in the world you call me, except for Saskatchewan. I told God I wouldn't want to go there. And God said, that's not good enough. I want you to be able to go anywhere. I said, fine, this is my deal. I said, I'll go anywhere, even Saskatchewan. But if it's Saskatchewan, you need to appear to me in a vision and tell me to go there. Not a dream. I'm awake. And then boom, an angel says, go. And I'll be like, fine, I'll go. Really, all I'm doing is asking for a Philip experience here, right? You need to be that crystal clear, God. No offense to anyone from Saskatchewan. You guys made it out. You're the lucky ones. (laughs) 
We want to have that type of clarity. We're not always given that type of clarity. Discerning God's call and his guidance and his will is crucial, and it often can be very subtle for us today, and we need to have an understanding of how we expect to do it. In her book, Pursuing God's Will Together, Ruth Haley Barton outlines a process for discerning God's will in community. And, and, and I love this process. It's not a formula. It's not like a magic formula where you do these things and it immediately comes out at the end. But there is some, a framework that you can work through to be open to clarifying God's leading in your life. And so I've adopted this, this process. I want to share a bit with you today because we need to know. If we're going to go, we need to know what God is asking us to do or he's telling us to go. So here is a process that you could follow as well. Number one, get ready. All this means is we need to clarify the question that you want to ask God. It could be about a, a job. It could be about a house. It could be about your education, about moving into a different community, about fixing or beginning certain relationships. Whatever that question is, clarify it. Make it crystal clear and specific. You get specific answers when you ask specific questions. That's how you are getting ready. Then you need to get set, which is to make sure that you are in the right position to receive God's guidance. And so you need to pray for yourself. Pray for indifference, wisdom, and quiet trust. Well, what do I mean by indifference? Indifference doesn't mean that you don't care. What we mean is that whenever we're looking for God's guidance and we want to ask him for something, we are often a biased participant. So we often have Uh, an answer that we know we're leaning towards already, that we really want God to say yes in this situation, or we really want God to say no. So praying for indifference is just to say, God, please remove all of these biases from me. Please make me a blank slate, open to your guidance one way or the other. That's the prayer for indifference. And then pray for wisdom, that you would have this ability to understand God's uh, guidance, and then trust that even if he says something unexpected, you would be willing to follow Philip's example and go. So now you've clarified the question. You've prayed for indifference, wisdom, and trust. Now you're ready to go and to seek God's guidance. So you pray again, but this time you're asking that specific question. God, where would you have me go? What would you have me do in this situation? And then once you've asked that question, you need to take time to listen to him. This is the hardest part because it takes time. It can take days. It can take weeks. It can take months, maybe even years in a certain situation. But take time to listen to God. And one of the ways that he answers is he can answer through uh, the way that you will feel about a certain situation. And so uh, Ruth Haley Barton will talk about consolation and desolation, where you, you, you pray about these different options. And, and sometimes you've heard it said, I just, I never had any peace about that. Have you, have you ever said that? You've ever felt that? Someone has told you? I'm never, I don't have any peace about this situation. Well, that can be uh, 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 this emotion of desolation where something just doesn't sit well with you. And the opposite could be consolation. The more I think about it, the more I pray about it, the more at peace I feel. So this is not just a, a purely emotional process, but it's not an unemotional process. As we ask God this question and ask for his guidance, we need to know where we have peace and where we don't. And then we need to compare notes. We need to go to God's word. And understand that he will never guide us or bring us to anything that goes against what he's revealed to be true in Scripture. Go to the Bible. It will guide you as well. And it will clarify what you think God might be asking of you. And then also compare notes with other believers. Especially if you're, if you're in a situation where the decision you want to make is going to affect a direct group of people around you. 
So for example, uh, when I was still uh, ministering in Stonewall, there was an opportunity at a different church to go and apply to be their senior pastor. And I was excited because I'm like, I'm ready for the senior pastor thing. Let's go. And I, I was so pumped about the opportunity. And then I bring it home to Karen and then Karen burst into tears. I was like, that's not the response I was looking for. What in the world's going on? And, and, and it really showed that this wasn't the right thing for us because I was excited about this professional opportunity, but there was no peace for my family around me. And then a few years later, we found ourselves here at Stony Brook, and now we know this is where God wanted us to be all along. And finally, in we're looking for God's guidance, we need to go and do it. That's the last step. This is the simple and significant obedience that we see from Philip that we also need to model. So this is not, again, a magic formula. It's not a perfect process. But I think it's important for us today to know that if, if, if the spirit of this sermon is to say, go and do what God is guiding you to do, then we need to know how we can ask for God's guidance. So hopefully you will find that process helpful. But Philip goes and he does what God has asked him to do. And this obedience leads him to encounter the Ethiopian eunuch out in the middle of nowhere. He had been in Jerusalem. He was now traveling south down towards Ethiopia in Africa. And who was this individual? Well, he was from the African nation of Ethiopia, which would have been a significant political power in that day. He was a eunuch. Uh, and then this was something that was uh, often done in, in, in court officials so that <laughs> they could keep him in line, I guess. I don't know why, uh, but, but a eunuch means he was, he was castrated. And if you still don't know what that is, then go talk to your parents after the service. They'd be more than happy to tell you what a eunuch is, okay? So this guy is a eunuch, and, and he is also really important. He's a court official. Not just that, but he's a treasurer. He is, is overseeing all the treasure of the queen in Ethiopia. So he is an important, rich, and powerful man. This is not just any regular Joe that's riding his own chariot back to his homeland. We also know that the Ethiopian was a God-fearing man, which would have been peculiar and unique. He was not a Jew. He was not from really anywhere that close to Israel. And yet, he was someone who believed in the one true God and who had come to Jerusalem to worship that God. And, and that wasn't enough for him, even as he was biding his time on that slow, dusty chariot ride in the middle of nowhere. He continued to read the scripture, particularly from the prophet Isaiah. But he couldn't have been a Jewish convert. The reason for this is that as a eunuch, he would have been perpetually, ceremonially unclean. So this is someone who, who was drawn to the God of the Jews and who worshipped there, but he had to do so from a distance. He couldn't enter the temple. He was someone who was seeking after God and worshipping God from the outside, looking in. And that meant that he was a Gentile, which becomes very, very important to what we understand about the church of Jesus at the beginning. So Philip has now obeyed God's guidance. He is right alongside of the chariot here. And we pick up our story in Acts 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before in shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said, 
to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So this Ethiopian official, this rich man, believed in God, and he was spiritually searching, but he needed help to find the truth. Philip says, do you understand what you are reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And that word guide is crucial in this passage, which is why I think the the NIV, if you're reading from that, it really misses the mark. It says, it translates that as helps, unless someone helps me. But, But guidance is our theme and guidance is important. It's crucial because we know that the Holy Spirit is at work. We know that the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus has promised he would do when he guides the Ethiopian into all truth. And yes, Philip was involved. Yes, he was obedient. Yes, he was the mouthpiece of the Spirit, but it was the Spirit who unlocked the truth for the man on the chariot. This is what we see Jesus teaching in John 16, 13, when he promises the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so here we have a man who loves God and is missing a piece of the picture, and he says, I just need someone to guide me. And Philip says, I know just who you need. And the Spirit guides him into all the truth about Jesus. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. More than just guide Philip and us as followers in Christ as to where we should go and what we should do, the Spirit also guides us into the truth about who God is and about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And for the Ethiopian and for Philip on that dusty, deserted road, it was the truth about Jesus foretold in Isaiah, specifically quoted from Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. The truth was that the history of Israel has always pointed to Jesus. That from the very beginning, God made a covenant with Abraham and says, through you, all nations will be blessed. And this is true in Jesus. And then amidst the the suffering of God's people, Isaiah prophetically views in in the future some figure that would suffer for behalf of the people of God and for the entire world. And this is true in Jesus. He is now the Savior of the world. Now we start to see that there are many similarities to this story in Acts 8 and Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. In both cases, we have a mysterious traveler appearing (laughs) as others are going down this road. Someone just pops up. And in both cases, this person pops up to answer the questions, questions that people have about who Jesus is. In both instances, they make the truth known. This is what Jesus does after his resurrection when he mysteriously appears unrecognized beside his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things according to himself. So Philip is just modeling what Jesus has already done. He just goes where God has told him to go, where God has led him, and he makes true and makes clear the truth about who Jesus is, starting with the scripture found in Isaiah. 
As we continue to work through this book, one significant lesson that we learn from Acts is that the Holy Spirit is fulfilling the same role today that he did then. So he is guiding Philip and where to go and what to do then. He is guiding us today. He is guiding the Ethiopian into all truth then, and he does the same for us today. The Holy Spirit still is our guide into all truth. This becomes an important promise during times of doubt and questioning. You may be here, and you might be wrestling with some very significant aspects of your faith. And it also becomes a promise that we can lean on when someone that you love is questioning or doubting their faith. During my tenure as a youth pastor, it was not uncommon, at least once or twice a year, to have a parent call me up in a bit of a panic. Little Jane doesn't know if she believes anymore. She's questioning her faith. And then I'd always have the same answer. Perfect. <laughs> what do you mean perfect? I mean, no. You always need your son or your daughter to make their faith their own. You don't actually desire for them to never question or to never doubt or never to seek after what is true. Their their faith needs to be because they believe, not just because you believe. Say, questions are great. It's when the questions stop that we need to begin to be worried. Don't be afraid of your questions. Don't be guilty of them. Don't ignore your doubts and shovel them under the rug and not share them with anybody else. They are crucial and important in your journey. And you, along with all of us, can trust that the Spirit will do what Jesus has promised He will do and lead you and guide you into what is actually true. So keep seeking. Ultimately, the Spirit has the ability to make the truth about Jesus clear in a way that we can't decipher all on our own. Because we know about Jesus. If you're here, my guess is you've already heard some things about him through the songs that we've sung and now through some of the the scripture that we've read together. And if you've gone to church through most of your life and you've you've heard the Sunday school stories and you've, you've memorized different scripture verses and you've heard many different sermons, hopefully this one is your all time favorite, you you know about Jesus. You've seen the evidence, you've heard the stories, but that's not believing in the truth. You need a guide to make things clear. A number of years ago, Karen and I went on a trip to Chicago, and we had a fascinating and fun time there. And we're planners, so we planned most of the things that we wanted to do. So we knew we wanted to go to Wrigley Field. I wanted to go to Wrigley Field. We wanted to go see the Bean. We wanted to get way up in the Sears Tower to, to, to be at the very height of one of the tallest skyscrapers in North America. We wanted to do these things. But there was one thing we did that was spontaneous, and that was an, an architectural tour. You could actually go on a boat um, through on the Chicago River, kind of down below even the level of the roads, and then you could just see with these beautiful, clear views all the skyscrapers that were around us. Now, we did this near the end of our time, and we had been driving around Chicago, and we had seen all of these things before. But it was the guide at the front of the boat that made all the difference. And we had all this new information. Oh, that, that building is so big, it takes up a whole city block, has its own zip code. That's fascinating. Wow, there's the Trump Tower, and he wasn't supposed to put his name on it. He did it anyway, and no, no one likes him. Then he's going to be president a few years later. Oh, this skyscraper doesn't actually own the land that it's on, and so they built it up off the land on these pillars, and it actually owns the air rights in that space. Did you know air rights exist? That's so weird. I didn't know any of those things. So even though I had seen and experienced all of those buildings before, I didn't know the truth until somebody told me about it. This is what the Spirit does for you. You can read 
about Jesus and sing songs about him and listen to sermons, but it is the spirit that makes everything fall into place. It's not an idea. It is the truth. And it's the truth that sets you free. The result for the Ethiopian was one of faith. He believed and was baptized. That picture became crystal clear. He believed and was baptized. And it didn't wait very long. We see in Acts, all throughout Acts, they believed and were baptized. And we don't know the time frame. This one tells us it can be pretty short. They were on this road in the middle of nowhere. And they, and they found some water, which might have been a miracle based on where they were traveling. And in that moment, the Ethiopians said, hey, what stops me from being baptized? And the answer was nothing. And so then they stop and he's baptized. No Bible studies, no membership classes, and no time to prove the faith genuine. Just belief, baptism, and joy. One little piece of trivia. If you're reading along with me, you'll notice that there is no verse 37 in your Bibles. It goes from verse 36 to verse 38. Isn't that fun? This is why you, this is why you pay me the big bucks to come here and learn cool stuff like this, right? Well, the reason is there was a, a verse 37 that was inserted by a scribe, almost certainly not original. And, and then the, and the Ethiopian was saying, what would stop me from being baptized? Well, let me see. I didn't write this down. And then verse 37 says, oh, so as Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's a wonderful verse. It's incredibly profound. It's sound theology. Almost certainly not something that Luke himself wrote. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That was the truth. The Holy Spirit guided him to that truth, and he responded through belief in baptism. And then the story gets weird in verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through the, there, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So for the Ethiopian, we see something that was expected. He was joyful. I mean, he was someone who, by all accounts, was seeking after God. He wanted to know what was true and real, and he almost had it. But he was always still on the outside looking in. Now he has the full, complete truth. He has a Savior in Jesus Christ. He is fully forgiven and accepted, and he can worship God, eunuch or not. So of course he is going to be joyful. Joy can be expected, but what Philip experiences is not expected. In fact, it's probably something that would feel more at home in a science fiction book than the Bible. And I find out this is a thing. It's a theme. I could look it up on my, on my uh, Bible software. It's called divine teleportation, <laughs> which, is, which is truly what happens here. The Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. And that carries is even just a kind of a, a soft term. It really is, is that God snatched or seized Philip. And then he brought him to a completely different location. Completely different. So bring up that map again. Let's just, I'll show you for, for a second. So they were on this road down here. Somewhere along here, probably right where the wilderness goes. And then in a blink of an eye, Philip is no longer there, but he's in Azotus, which is right here up the coast. Uh, that happened just like that. And that's pretty crazy. And he didn't expect it because it says he just found himself there, <laughs> which, is, which is a rather weird thing. So, so I was trying to wrestle during the course of this week on, on how I was going to preach this. And I was a little disappointed in many commentaries I read that they just kind of ignored this fact that in the Bible, we see Philip and then he's just gone and then he's somewhere, somewhere else. 
And as crazy as it sounds, and it is crazy, it is also not the first time we know something like this has happened. In fact, it's another similarity to Jesus' experience on the road to Emmaus. So Jesus had, had come alongside his disciples and had his identity disguised. And then he explained the truth about himself as they went. And this is what happened afterwards on the road to Emmaus. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were, he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then what happens? And then he vanished from their sight. This has happened before. Luke doesn't tell us where Jesus went at that point, but we know that he left. And in a similar manner, we see Philip do the same. All I can say is that the truth is stranger than fiction. In this case, maybe the truth being stranger than science fiction. But what does this mean to us? I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is my limb. I'm going to say that none of us are likely to experience divine teleportation. That's my limb. I don't think that's going to be in the cards for many of us. Now, do I believe that the Spirit would be fully capable of that today as he was then? Yes, I do believe that. I do think it was an exception then, even more so an exception now. But what does this part of the story matter then? Well, I think it points that all things are possible for God, which makes our following him and his guidance a true adventure. Sometimes we can expect what happens next. The Ethiopian believes and he's joyful. Sometimes we don't expect what happens next. Philip was here, and then he was somewhere different. During many of these moves that I talked about with my family, where we were following God's guidance, we had a theme song, an old song that's going to date me quite a lot. It was by Stephen Curtis Chapman called The Great Adventure. And so we would always crank that thing. We'd put the cassette in the, in the cassette player, and then we would turn it up. And listen to him sing, saddle up your horses. We've got a trail to blaze to the wild blue yonder full of God's amazing grace. We follow our leader into the glorious unknown. To the glorious unknown. The glorious unknown. And as I've gotten older, and as I worry more, and as I take on more responsibilities, I find that the, it's harder and harder for me to look at the future as a glorious unknown. And maybe you're like me. It's much easier to define it as the dangerous unknown. Like what, what's happening next is like what bad thing is going to happen? What loss will occur? What hardship is around the bend? What danger is lurking there? And so out of response to that, we try to get rid of the unknown as much as possible. We try to control all the variables. It's like, well, I will plot my own course. I will make sure I make the right decisions and have enough money in the bank and, and pursue good education and train my children in a certain way. It, it might be the glorious unknown, but it's mostly known by me. We can trick our th ourselves into thinking. Yet the place I believe that God wants us to be is right where Philip found himself. He had no idea where that next step would take him. He was willing to take that step. For Philip, it was the glorious unknown. And as strange as it is, I believe it's true that following God's guidance requires us to recapture our sense of adventure, to acknowledge that we have no idea what tomorrow holds, and yet to be actively excited about it because God is already there. 
Can we do that? Can we be willing to trust that the future is in God's hands and that expected or unexpected, that it will be something worth pursuing and living for? So as the music team comes back up, I want to remind you all, and if you didn't pick up on this detail, guidance has been our big idea all morning long. God will guide you in what you ought to do and where you should go. That's his job. He showed that to Philip. He is faithful to do that today. Our job then, we are called to discern and to obey, to rise up and to go and to do. We also know that God will guide you into all truth. That's the promise and the characteristic of the Holy Spirit. We are called to honestly seek for the truth and trust that he will take it from there. And God will guide you to unexpected places. And we should follow our leader into the glorious unknown. And I, for one, can't wait to see what happens next. And that is a little bit of a cliffhanger. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good God. And life hasn't been easy. Sometimes I know that the hard things in life make us more skeptical of the future. God, I pray that that our reason to be excited would not be just because of, of a good future, but the fact that you are a good God in that future and that we would be ready for an adventure and be willing for you to, to take us and to lead us into places and situations that are out of our comfort zone and unexpected, but full of your glory and your grace. God, I pray that you would guide us into your truth and that we would encourage others to follow suit so that we can see those around us come into saving faith in you. In this we pray. Amen. Thank you.